Hey, Dan. What up, guy? You're into this fintech. What's all this I'm hearing about Current? You're going to like this guy. Current is a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. Wait a second. Does that mean I don't have to drive to the bank anymore? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I manage an important part of my family's finances from one easy-to-use app. Well, I got to get this app, but where can I learn more? It's super easy. Just go to Current.com slash OK, O-K-A-Y, and download the app. That's Current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. Welcome to OK Computer. I am Dan Nathan, joined by Deirdre Bosa, the host of CNBC's Tech Check. Debo, welcome to the pod. Happy to be here. Happy post-holiday week. Oh, man. Last week, we left for the holiday, and it was all OpenAI. We get back, and OpenAI, it just seems like it's all wrapped up. Sam Altman's back at the helm here, and it looks like we're just ready to go. Wasn't that nice of them? Just before Thanksgiving, so all of us tech journalists could breathe a little. You and I got a lot to go through. Obviously, we're focused now on holiday sales and the e-commerce wars, obviously here from our incumbents, but also some of those from Asia. And there's a lot going on there. There's a lot going on. Is the IPO market about to open up in 2024? I know this time last year, a lot of folks were hoping that would be 2023. There's some early indications that there is a few major companies knocking at the door. But Listen, stick around for my conversation with Packy McCormick of Not Boring Capital and Cleo Abram of Huge If True. We talk about their success as creators and we talk about their techno-optimist bent that they both have. I am a follower of all their work and you're going to love that conversation. All right, Debo, let's do it here where OpenAI is out. And we are talking about e-commerce, holiday sales, any big takeaways? Because as you and I are recording Tuesday into the close, we have a market that's gone sideways, but we have PDD pinned out. You're going to fix my pronunciation of that. They are the owner of the Timu app. And you've been reporting a lot on Timu over the last few months or so. This is something that a lot of U.S. investors, at least in the public markets, have not really had their sights set on, but it seems to be taking U.S. consumers by storm a little bit and PDD pinned out now. They reported this morning the stock is up, I, I want to say more than. I don't know, almost 15% or so, making new 52-week highs. What's the deal there? So I would also say that maybe many American consumers don't even know that Timu is Chinese, but Pinduoduo, as we'll call it, is a Chinese company. And I started following this company many years ago when it became this sort of quiet and quick competitor to Alibaba. Alibaba just dominated the market and Pinduoduo, along with JD.com, came along and did what many thought was impossible. And now is doing that on our own shores in America, just capturing the American consumer. It's really been incredible to see its rise. They had that commercial shop like a billionaire. Do you remember last Super Bowl? I think they had two spots. They've been spending a huge amount of money on marketing. And they, they don't really highlight the fact that they're Chinese, but their whole proposition is ultra cheap goods at bargain basement prices. And so over the last week, I know as every sort of holiday shopping season comes along, we're so interested in what Amazon and Target and Walmart and Etsy and eBay are doing. But this year, it was really fun to look at and think about the effect of these Chinese e-commerce platforms that have just taken the American consumer by storm really over the last year or so. 
It's interesting. And again, Alibaba is something, a name that a lot of U.S. investors are very familiar with. They don't do a ton of sales right here in the U.S., but it's pretty fascinating on a day that that Pindado is rallying off of these Timu results and the excitement in and around it. Alibaba is very near a 52-week low. It's down 76% Debo from its you know 2021 highs. It's down 36% from its 52-week highs. And just that is just a pretty staggering comparison when you think about it, at least through the lens of uh, investors. And then when you think about, again, I know that you did this long-form piece, I, I think you put out on CNBC.com a couple months ago about the Timu and the Xi'an effect. And this is something that I know a lot of folks are lumping in also as a Chinese retailer. The headline yesterday was that this company might go public in the U.S. in the not-so-distant future. Talk to us a little bit uh, about Xi'an also. So Xi'an is, okay, it is a Chinese company, but it is also, like Timu, trying very hard to be seen as not Chinese. You can't deny that Pinduoduo Duo and Timu is a Chinese company. Xi'an, though, it gets a little bit cloudy because it's headquartered in Singapore, and it actually doesn't even sell to the Chinese consumer. That's a big difference, right? Pinduoduo sells to the Chinese consumer. It made its name there first, found profitability in China, where Xi'an has this different model where it just began by selling outside of China. And it's a brand like a Nike or an Apple or an H&M, right? Because the clothes are Xi'an branded. And again, similar proposition though is a Timu, just really cheap. You go to the site or open the app and you're just inundated with discounts, free stuff. It's hard to look away and it's a new kind of shopping. It gamifies shopping in a way that our sort of e-commerce platforms we haven't seen from them. I'll also just mention TikTok as well, right? This has really been the year of the rise of the Chinese e-commerce platforms. And TikTok, with its huge reach, has been able to get in on that as well. And it was funny, I was looking at the Black Friday, Cyber Monday deals. The way that TikTok does it is they'll show a viral video and say, oh, by the way, just click here and you don't have to leave the app and you can just buy this product. That you just saw a video went viral about. We spent much of the last few years going back and forth with this kind of, should TikTok be banned? Should it not be banned? And now when you throw e-commerce into the mix and you throw advertising in the mix and you talk about misinformation and the ability to use these kind of viral social sort of networks to influence thought and, and, and consumer behavior, I'm hard pressed to see that these models are just morphing into each other and that we don't hear more about kind of regulatory action about some of these brands coming over here. Thoughts on that? Because I just mentioned Alibaba. It doesn't seem like there's a lot of U.S. investor demand for that name right now. And we just mentioned the fact that Bashan might go public here. Is it that different of a model? Do they have that different of a sort of regulatory like view that this is something that yeah. you know, U.S. investors should welcome? I remember I would always ask Alibaba years ago if it was interested in the American consumer and whether they were answering honestly or not. They said, no, we're interested in American sellers, right, to sell to the Chinese population who wants good baby formula. It doesn't trust necessarily what's being manufactured in China, whereas Timu and Xi'an have flipped that. They use Chinese merchants who can produce things at very low cost to sell to an American consumer who, in this economy, wants what? Discounts, right? That was a big theme, whether that was Amazon or Walmart or anyone else of this holiday shopping season so far. Shein going 
public is going to raise all sorts of those questions. And right now, Shein and Timu, they use a loophole to get products in. If there's a shipment less than $800, you can actually just slide it in and avoid a lot of the paperwork and scrutiny that would follow a much larger order. So that's really like the backbone of how these platforms operate, small shipments. And unlike Amazon, people are willing to wait a little longer if it means that they're getting cheaper prices. Yeah. And I wonder, Amazon, if you just look at some of the kind of data that's come out from some of these third-party like kind of tracking services. And, and I, I think I read a stat the other day, like prior to Black Friday, they had already shipped nearly 5 billion packages in the U.S alone. They're expected to get to 6 billion by the end of the year. And it just seems like they're absolutely dominating. A lot of that maybe is just behavior that was pulled forward during the pandemic. There's a lot more folks that are just really comfortable with e-commerce. And then you just think about how promotional so many retailers in the U.S. were for weeks before Black Friday. It used to be that you would have to go into the stores and get those sorts of deals. So it just feels like a lot of behavior has changed. And I wonder if we get into January here and we start thinking about Q4 results, are we going to see, as you called it, the Timu and Shein effect on U.S. e-commerce as we think about trends going into 2024 and what some of the impact of that was in this Q4 holiday season. Yeah, and I think it comes down to market share. Are those platforms eating into Amazon and Walmart's market share? Because they're so low priced, it was and has been thought that they would threaten the dollar stores, not necessarily the Amazons, which has a flywheel, right? You don't just go to Amazon to shop. You may watch your football there, right? You might stream on Amazon Prime. You might get your groceries. But I think at the end of the day, still a lot of people are going there for that two-day shipping, one or two-day shipping. The difference though is you go there with intent, right? You know what you want and then you search it. Whereas the Timu and Sheehan's, you go there to browse. It's like an e-commerce window shopping experience for junk. (laughs) Hey, listen, you just made a really great point. And I was sitting there and I was like, okay, I get it. Amazon, they bid for those Thursday night NFL rights. Okay. And I'm sitting there on Friday at home, a little turkey hangover and the like. And then that Dolphins jet game comes on and all I see are ads with QR codes and the special drops from Amazon. And I'm like, oh my goodness, this is genius when you think about this, right? And you think about that advertising business that they have been building, right? And their ability now to integrate that sort of live content where people normally are going to be sitting on their phones and probably shopping anyway, but they're watching a game for free on Amazon. They're getting all these like kind of celeb endorsed things and all this kind of cool content and ads. And it felt really seamless. And I have to think that they just turned that whole model upside down. When you think about TV broadcasting in general, it's really live that works right now anyway. And if Amazon's going to get in that game and they're going to merge these two different behaviors, it just seems like a really interesting thing going forward. I wonder if we're going to see a lot more of that in 2024. I mean, that's everything that Amazon has been building towards, right? That flywheel where everything serves everything else. And advertising is one of these businesses that grew so quickly at Amazon, almost like an AWS, right? Because it's so high margin that it's been such a successful business. But you got to keep in mind that they're spending a lot of money on some other businesses that are not nearly as high margin or even profitable, like devices and streaming. They spend a lot to try and bring in the prime 
subscriber. And that's what it all comes back to is the prime subscriber that's going to watch Friday Night Football that they created, Amazon itself created, while shopping on the Amazon app. Yeah, sticking on, on kind of the digital ad space, there was an interesting article in the information yesterday. TikTok ignited a frenzy for short videos. Now it wants longer ones. And they're basically saying like basically longer videos, they can serve more ads on and they're getting more engagement in creators who create longer videos. And, and, and again, this could be their algo pushing them. You know what I mean? Who knows what they're doing, but they're basically saying, give us longer videos. You're going to get more engagement. Okay. You're going to get that dopamine and we're going to be able to serve more ads on your longer videos. Pretty genius, huh? It's the Chinese playbook and any tech company's playbook, right? You spend a ton of money to lock in the consumer and then you raise costs or you make the videos longer and hope people stick around. But that's exactly what Timu and Xi'an are doing as well. These deep discounts, they can't last forever, right? But once you get the American consumer hooked, you slowly raise prices, you take away some of the discounts. And that, by the way, has worked incredibly well for Pinduoduo in China. So if that's the playbook, and who knows if it's going to work as well here, if that's a playbook that they're employing here, that could mean that you could see a Pinduoduo that breaks even or that is profitable. And maybe when we get that IPO prospectus or S1 from Xi'an, the numbers could surprise us. Because even though doing these huge discounts, if you look at what Pinduoduo has been able to do, and that is turn a profit while offering these deep discounts by doing things differently, like small batch wholesale manufacturing or using that stamp tax to to get your goods in in smaller batches. These are all little tricks that Chinese e-commerce platforms can use. Last thing on this, and I guess it's ad related too, but it also ties into what we we're talking about with maybe the IPO market opening up. We know that there's probably plenty of demand. When I think about just kind of 2023 being almost like a mirror opposite of what happened in the public markets in 2022, we have the S&P that's up nearly 20%. We have a NASDAQ that's up 35%, a NASDAQ 100 that's up 45%. You think it's probably not a bad time to start getting those S ones ready. If you've been waiting to go public, and there was a story yesterday that Reddit is getting ready for a 2024 IPO. There's a whole list uh, of companies, and, and these are companies that brand names that we all know and use their products and the like here. When I think about just the digital ad landscape and some of these new players, and then we talk about what Amazon has been able to do, you think about a Reddit and you think about it's niche. And when you think about the performance that we've seen out of Twitter before it went private, but even out of Snap, some of these kind of second and third tier players, I wonder like what the runway is for those largely ad supported, would you want Reddit to be the first to test the, the tech IPO waters in, in, in a volatile economic environment where we know digital ads are very cyclical also? One thing I'll say is that Reddit has been rumored to go public for so many years now. I'll believe it when I see it. And I don't think that the IPO window is wide open. We got a few in September and they really haven't done all that well. It's fine if you need to be public, if you need to go out, which raises an interesting question. Why is she in going public now? Maybe to raise a bunch of capital to compete with Timu. But I would be happy to see more because it's one of my favorite things to report on. I love it when a private company can dig into its financials. Reddit, I, we'll see. I'm skeptical. I think that the IPOs that went public are just a few months ago had to, especially in Instacart. And the conditions told them that they were great. They were okay. Listen, as far as a, a public markets person, it's great to see new companies come to market. And I think that a lot of us, we couldn't keep our kind of heads in one place in 2021 when all those companies were coming public via SPAC here. And I think regular way, there was such a push for direct listings and, and SPACs and the like. And I think a lot of investors probably will welcome a traditional IPO process going forward where there's a lot more disclosure, a lot more cautionary sort of crossing your I's and dotting your T's and the like. 
like by the sorts that exist in that process to vet IPOs before they get to the public investors. All right, listen, Debo, I really appreciate you taking the time to drop your knowledge here. Well, hopefully we'll see you next week and hopefully maybe we'll have something new on the open AI. I appreciate yeah. it. All right, stick around, everybody. I have a great conversation with Cleo Abram of Huge If True and Packy McCormick of Not Born. Hey, listeners, it's Dan here. I want to tell you about a company that I'm really excited about. It's called Current. It's a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. I'm a new Current customer. It's already helping me and my entire family manage our finances, all from one easy-to-use app. So try Current for yourself and get the app by going to Current.com slash OK. That's Current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. Welcome back to OK Computer. I am joined by two of my favorite people here in New York, but also two of my favorite creators. That would be Cleo Abram of Huge If True, and also Packy McCormick, who writes the Not Boring newsletter, who runs the Not Boring Fund, and just launched a video series called Age of Miracles. Guys, gal, welcome back to the pod. Thanks for having me. All right. This is kind of interesting because, you know, I follow both of you guys on all the socials. I subscribe to everything that you guys have here. And like I said, you know, um, you guys are like two really big outliers and really uh, obviously with a, with a tech focus, but like two very kind of similar sort of strategies. You guys are both like what, what we would call techno optimists, if you will. And so I kind of want to dig into a little bit about what you're doing, Cleo, because like when you and I first met, you were still at Vox. You were like a very successful video producer producer of some really cool programming that they were doing, but you decided to go out on your own. And what you've mapped out is so unique to what I think a lot of, you know, like commentary, a lot of uh, research, a lot of content that creates in and around technology. And you were very clear about it from the get-go, from the trailer. If you look on your YouTube account, that has nearly 2 million subscribers. I mean, it really is amazing. On TikTok, you have, what, 1.3 million followers. Um, on Instagram, almost a million. And sadly, on Twitter... I don't even know where it is. I mean, like, who knows, right? So so talk to us a little bit about, like, the course that you set out for yourself when you left Vox and what you were trying to accomplish. And I, by all accounts, I mean, you are succeeding. Thank you. I I really appreciate it. It's been a pretty wild almost two years. Um, I left Vox because I really wanted to make this one specific show. I had this idea for a really optimistic explainer show about technology where you would take one innovative idea or specific piece of tech and you would explain not just how it works, but play it out a little bit into the future. Like, what is the positive future that this tech could help us build? And I just love stories like that. I love watching them. I was a kid who watched a lot of Star Trek and Wait, Star Trek, not Star Wars. Uh, Star, if if I, I mean both, but if I had to choose, it's you're an a, easy, Packy, easy you're a Star choice. Wars guy. Please, I, I'm kind of neither. Oh, I wow. like reading okay, sci-fi. Wow. Okay, fair enough. That's very highbrow. Yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> um, and I just felt, as a watcher and a reader, that I wasn't getting much of that particular flavor anymore. Not from sci-fi, which is wonderful, but decidedly dystopian. Or from, frankly, tech journalism. And as a tech journalist, as a video journalist, that's what I really wanted to make and put out into the world. And so this show, Huge If True, is really what I wanted to watch. And I decided to go independent to do it because I had this sort of very particular vision, this this approach that I really wanted to test out. 
and have creative control and see if it worked. And I'm really glad that there are a lot of people out there that seem to have that same feeling. And so that's why I think the show it's, is it's great. It's funny. So you said, you know, you wanted to go independent. When you think about it, though, like you couldn't really garner the sort of following, I mean, that you have without being dependent on some of these big platforms. And I, I think it's really important that we should talk about a little bit because, Packy, you, um, I, I, I learned of you uh, from Twitter. You know, you know what I mean? And, and it felt like a really different time in a way. And like it felt like, you know, I, I think it was probably early 2020 or so. And I started seeing you being retweeted by some very prominent tech folks or some people in the media. Uh, it started popping up on some podcasts that I was already listening to. I immediately reached out to you. I think I slid into your DMs. I'm like, you got to come on my podcast. I, I guess your commentary in and around tech at the time, and it was obviously pretty Web3 centric. And you really had, I think, your finger on the pulse of a lot of that. But it was really optimistic too. And I think that was something that I think is devoid of kind of like stock market Twitter, if you will. It was very welcomed. And I think you were like a really interesting crossover at the time. But again, you were very dependent on building that audience through Twitter, through one of these platforms. Talk to me a little bit about what that meant. I mean, you and I have talked about it on the pod in the past, but you have a newsletter now that's read by over 200,000 people. It's widely cited in the tech community and, and the like here. What, what has this kind of journey been like for you? I got very lucky that I started, I think, in 2020, right? Like everybody was stuck at home. I was stuck at home. We were in my in-laws basement and just started writing. I, I think I'm just dumb enough to be uh, optimistic. And so like some of the first essays that I wrote were like, why, you know, using the Mickey Mouse Club to explain creative destruction and why it was like actually this really good thing that people were losing their jobs because there was all this bloat and people were just stuck in kind of bullshit jobs in these large companies and like maybe it would go and get people to start companies and whatever else. So the optimism was kind of there from the beginning. I've written about a bunch of different topics since, but I think it really, uh, it really took off because one, not as many people were writing then and now a lot more. I, I think if I launched today, God knows how many people uh, I'd have subscribing. Uh, and then two, because I, remained optimistic and kind of have through this bear market and like the whole time, like that is just how I kind of see the world. But the journey has been wild. I think when I started, I had, after a year of doing it on the side, I had 400 subscribers on Substack. I had like 2000 followers on Twitter or something like that. And then beginning of the pandemic just kind of took off, but I've been writing practically every week since then, either about companies or just kind of broadly what I see going on in the industry. But last year, I mean, I wrote a piece on optimism when I felt like things were really, really dark and the media was, you know, covering everything negatively. And I think I said it huge if true in that piece is like one of the few shining lights of something that was out there optimistic, but also, you know, deep and like got into the details on stuff. It's it's been very cool to watch that happen. And certainly one of the reasons that we started this new podcast, Age of Miracles. Yeah, I want to get into that because when I first saw that when you introduced it on the not boring newsletter, I, I think I forwarded it to you like immediately. I'm like waiting to get a load of this because I I, I literally I think I watched about 15 minutes or so and I immediately emailed you and I was like, dude, this is awesome. And and I was really excited for you because, you know, listen, sometimes it takes me like two or three passes to kind of finish a not boring article. They're pretty long and in depth. And it's one of the reasons why I really love what Cleo does. Also, I know how deeply you research these topics and um, but your ability to synthesize it into 15 minutes or so. Is that about right? It is really interesting. So like like and, and I guess the juxtaposition is if I really want to dig into a topic and, and bookmark a bunch of things and, and the like here. Not boring is the place to be. <laughs> I think there's going to be an intersection between Age of Miracles and Not Boring. But what you do in 15 or 16 or 17 minutes is to me, like, um, it's entertaining. Um, I'm, I'm learning a lot and it actually leaves me wanting more. How have you arrived at that sort of 15 minute mark as, the, as kind of like the, the sweet spot, I guess, for this content? I think about a lot of these questions as 
what would you want to watch? What would you genuinely enjoy? And when would it feel too long for you? And it's not as much an exercise in like how long I want to spend on a story as a creator, because the truth is like, we know when it feels indulgent, like, you know, when you're making something that is just like, because you can. And so when I go out into the world, and I look at what I actually enjoy watching, it's like, when there's a narrative arc that will propel me through someone's story, like a character story. I love documentary that can be, you know, anywhere from an hour and a half to two hours. But what I do doesn't have that kind of arc. It has the arc of I'm a character learning about something and hopefully I'm a proxy for the audience. Unless there is a, a story where I'm going on a journey that could take, I mean, YouTube now and, and the production quality on YouTube could support something much longer. And I, I, Maybe that I'll get there one day. But in terms of the format that I have, it's really enjoyable for about 15 to 20 minutes. You know, like that's the amount of time that you want to spend with something like that information dense. But also I demand a lot of the audience in that you need to watch and listen at the same time. It's not like a podcast in, in which it could be like I could listen to a podcast for three hours integrated into my daily routine. My videos require your eyes at the same time. And so that's pretty demanding. That's yeah, but about you as minutes. the avatar for the audience is a really interesting angle. And I think it's also very aspirational. When I'm sitting there watching one of your videos and you were interviewing Daniel Eck, former CEO, but founder of Spotify and Grimes on what the impact of AI on music and the like, I'm like, I actually want to be sitting in your seat. How have you gained access to some of these folks? You had Eric Schmidt on, on one of your recent videos. I mean, it's pretty astounding because a lot of folks like me who've been kind of pounding it out on CNBC for the last 15 years, like those guys won't return my calls here. Honestly, I think it's that somebody either showed them the show and they genuinely liked it, which is great. And also that's a benefit of being independent, right? Like you're not buoyed by the media company brand, but you're also not diluted by it in the sense that like when someone, even if you're much smaller than a media company, when someone watches your work, they, they gain a, an understanding of what you're like and what you will produce if they're going to speak to you. And so I use the same rules to talk to them, you know, as I would have if I was at Vox, but they have a pretty clear understanding of what my goal is because they've seen what I've made yeah. before. And if they like it, they might want to speak to me. The other thing that I think is going on is that there's a, a general understanding that's growing that YouTube and TikTok and Instagram and short form video in general, and that those can be very highly produced to very informative and very well watched places to get a message out. So if you are the CEO of Spotify and you're thinking about AI and you haven't really commented on that before, and you want someone who's going to do a journalistic deep dive, and it's different than like them putting out something of their own, but you also want to be seen by a very large audience audience and have a sort of generally optimistic like approach for exploring how this could help a lot of people. It's a great format for that. It's a great format for people who are genuinely trying to build something and they want a journalist to come in and give it a good shake. And I think I think there's that combination. They see the show, they might like the show. And also there's a greater appreciation for the format itself now, I think, and I'm benefiting. And it's also curiosity. And Packy, that's something that I, I, I've always noted in your kind of tone. Like you, you approach these topics with a level of curiosity that I think a, a lot of folks in more institutionalized sort of backgrounds, if you were a research analyst at like an investment bank or, a, you know, a think tank or something like that, you're going to be less curious and more critical in a way. And so it almost speaks to the 
this kind of sort of optimistic bent that you take. Talk to me a little bit because, again, and, and I don't mean to make a um, joke about the length in which that you write. I mean, it, it is it, it is great because you are like there's no stone unturned when you're doing this. And so I suspect, though, a lot of your readers come from very institutionalized sort of backgrounds. So talk, talk to me a little bit about like the, your stylistically, what that has meant, what is some of the feedback that you get from your readers. And, and think about like, you know, other creators out there. There's a lot of folks that, you know, used to do these long Twitter threads and, and there's a lot of sub stacks and, and a lot of stuff is really well read. It might have, you know, not a huge audience like yours, but a, a pretty dedicated audience. So I'm just curious, like how you think about that relative to a lot of the writings and a lot of the content that's out there, because you look at it through a bit of an investment lens. You're trying to think about this as not like how it's going to change the world. And I know that probably when you're investing in some of the early stage companies that you do, that's obviously the impetus for you doing that. But when you write five or 10,000 words or whatever on a topic, you're really thinking about it at the end. Is this something that I'm going to commit capital to one way or another, right? Is that fair? That's often the case. I actually just had a conversation with somebody about this today. They're asking about the difference between when I write about a company and when I invest in a company. And I think there's on the investing side, I mean, they have to kind of match. I don't want to write about a company that I think is just going to fall apart, and particularly when I'm writing about startups. But I think there are a few other things on the company side around, particularly with privates. If it's a hard tech startup, their capital efficiency, the you know ability of the, the founder to raise money to keep kind of funding this like impossibly hard thing. There are a few different things, but I think to change the world in the long term, and same with a lot of the, the huge attributes as I watch, like these companies need to be around, they need to get to scale, they need to recruit employees, they need to have investors on board. So I do think those conversations often look a lot alike. But yeah, I, I love the technology side and the business model. And then in particular, if you can find ones where the technology enables a different business model or, or something like that, that is kind of like the sweet spot for me. But yeah, I, the first piece of advice I got when I started writing was like, you want to make it quick and snappy and short and all of that. And I tried to do that and I'm just not good at it. And I try to do it every week and I'm just not that good at it. And I think like, you know, Fred Wilson at Union Square Ventures writes these really short, amazing little blog posts because he has so many years of experience and he's just really good. Whereas I like, I'm also kind of an avatar where I'm like, look, I have nothing better to do than like go research the hell out of this thing that you're curious about. And so I'm going to tell you as much as I possibly can about this thing in a narrative form and hope that it that kind of sticks. We did the podcast and oddly enough, like my thought was there are some topics that are too deep for me to explore in a single newsletter. And so I need to do a season long, like I think it'll end up being probably 14 hours of content or something podcast. And it really like the inspiration there was a combination of like if acquired Huge of True and then Gamecraft by Blake Robbins and Mitch Lasky had a baby, like what would that look like? How do you dive into an industry? And I think when I write about topics, like it is very optimistic and it can't get deep enough on what are like a lot of the challenges or like what is somebody who's been in this industry for 20 years, like what are they going to yell at me about that I'm going to miss here when I just am writing like only a 10,000 word piece on the topic? So trying to get as many experts involved as possible to say like, this thing is amazing. Here's how the business works. Here's what the future looks like. And here's like all the shit that we're going to have to get right in order for this thing to reach scale and make an impact. Yeah. And, and how do you guys think about feedback? I mean, so you said like an expert on the topic, like yelling at you. I mean, has that helped guide some of your writing and, and then obviously creation of the podcast a little bit? And, and do you test some of the stuff out at first uh, before you put it out there in the world? You know, the, the feedback is generally pretty good. There are some times where like, I'll just get feedback in the comments or on Twitter that's like, really great post. You missed this whole piece of it. And like this part won't work the way that you think it will because you haven't thought as deeply about X, Y, and Z. I don't let it, like, I, I think if you don't listen at all, that's bad. If you take too much, you become too different from kind of what you are. And so I'm trying to find that sweet spot in the middle, but kind of have that voice in the back of my mind that's like, where am I being maybe 
dumb optimistic as opposed to like, you know, definitely optimistic where it's like, we can figure this thing out because of X, Y, and Z as opposed to like, I don't know, we'll figure this thing out. Uh, what about you? I mean, Cleo, do you, do you read your replies? <laughs> or, or no, you and I have had conversations, I think, offline about just how absolutely horrible. I mean, you're as a female creator and you cross into a world where there's not a lot of women who, who are in the conversation. Is that fair to say, like, uh, uh, on a lot of these topics? And, you know, you've said just the level of misogynistic sort of stuff, it, it, it gets a little much. And I'm sure you have a lot of your replies turned off. I think in particular with video, that can become an issue. I do have a really strong community around the YouTube show. And it means a lot to me to see for the first like couple hours when you know it's mostly going to people who have subscribed to the show. The quality of the feedback and the level of conversation between people in the comments is very high. Also on YouTube, there's a section uh, called the community section. And I often get feedback from the group of people that would see that. And that's almost entirely subscribers, mostly. In terms of the kinds of feedback that I actually listen to, as opposed to the sort of, you're right, like misogynistic junk that you try and tune out. There are two groups of people that I really think about when I'm writing a story, and I'll try and get feedback from both of them before I post. One is experts in the industry that I'm working on. I'm always interviewing experts on background. I'm almost always featuring at least one, if not more, of those experts in the actual video. And when I interview someone journalistically, they don't see the video before it comes out, but I have that whole conversation about the topic itself. And I'm often asking them questions via email to clarify things. And it means a lot to me when experts in the field of the topic that I've worked on really like the video. The reason why I've gotten great feedback generally from experts on the topics I cover is that they appreciate someone coming in and explaining it so that they could send it to their families or their friends or whatever. It means a lot to me when um, I, you know, hear from an expert like, oh, I sent this to my daughter. She's in college. And like she and I had a wonderful conversation about my work afterward. Like, oh, that's awesome. The other group of people is the daughter in that example, like young people who are generally interested in these topics, who are very smart, but don't have the jargon associated with that industry. I try and write. I got this from from Vox. I believe it's a memo that Ezra Klein wrote originally. Never underestimate your audience's intelligence and never overestimate their prior knowledge. So I try really, really hard not to use acronyms or jargon, but to speak to someone who I think is smarter than me in some other different field. So I think about any person who's like that, who's just curious and interested and a total non-expert. And I often field the videos with my friends, people who I think are like that. So so my daughter's 18 and 20, Packy, thinks she Cleo's a total rock star. I mean, like Lily, and 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 you know what's amazing is that I think I know, but like like they saw her video, they saw her on TikTok before I think like like they were like, you know Cleo, like or something like that, which is absolutely amazing, like that kind of crossover ability. Let, let's talk a little bit about monetization because you know, Packy, you've had like in it, you, you talked about how you started writing this in your in-laws basement and quickly there was like lots of opportunities. Obviously you went deep in the world of web three and there were some really interesting monetization opportunities there with your content and you're very open about it. You have paid posts that you do these sponsored posts and you do these deep dives and you do them on companies that you believe in and that you're likely to invested in the like. And I know you've turned down dozens, maybe hundreds over the last few years. And there's a lot of folks who would love to kind of slap your name on on some sort of deep dive. And you've said no to a lot of that stuff. I, I know that obviously with the launch of Not Boring Fun, that was probably the kind of crux of what you were trying to achieve. Ultimately, you arrived at that. But have you thought about like alternative forms of monetization? How are you thinking about it with the video podcasts and the like? I'm just curious. Are, are there models that are evolving right now over the last you know few years? We're pretty plain vanilla and all of that. I mean, I think we were, you know, normal sponsorships on the newsletter. I think we were early and good sponsored 
deep dives, which, you know, there's obviously been sponsored content on the internet for a very long time. More people are doing that now. We're doing fewer of them, but I'll still do them because I think Ben Thompson talked about it on his podcast that like it gives me access to private companies that you wouldn't get otherwise. He was reluctant to do private companies because you couldn't get the kind of detail. And if someone's paying you a bunch of money to write something, like it is anybody you want to talk to, any document you want to see, all of the board decks, like every possible internal thing. Uh, and I think I can get pretty deep on, on companies doing that. And it's a great way to run the business. On the podcast side, we're also getting like straight up sponsors and, you know, host read ads. And I haven't seen a ton that I, that's worth betting the business on, on the other side. So right now it's normal sponsorships, deep dives, podcast sponsorships, and the fund. Yeah. Well, it, it's interesting because there's so many interesting brands that I've actually learned of that have been sponsors of your podcast, of your writing. And and by the way, like just, I literally have subscribed on the Cleo Abrams sort of backslash, you know, thing. You have so many unique brands that are sponsored. The way you integrate your brand sponsorships, they're all, again, much like Packy, these are services or, or products that you are using. You give examples how you use them. It feels really natural and it makes me want to go below and click on the thing and try it out. And I've done a bunch of it. Talk to me, like, th is this new for you? I mean, that's obviously was the Vox business model. It wasn't Netflix. That's where Explained was. That was a, a, obviously a, a paid subscriber sort of environment. I'm just curious, like, how how has your thought process evolved about this? Because you have amassed on social platforms, like, you, you could be a Kardashian with, like, the following that you have. I mean, it's pretty astounding. Is there a level okay, above? Yeah, yeah. It does fund a a good business that supports great journalism. I mean, I have just been really happy with the way that independent media can be supported by advertising. I don't have a paid subscription yet. Maybe that's to come in the future. But right now, everything is ads. And if you're doing ads, the biggest thing is, can you do them in a way that's not annoying and that really offers something like access to a company or a really fascinating explainer video on something a company is doing? I don't sell a full Huge If True episodes. That's entirely editorial. And the full episodes, I mean the 15 to 20 minute YouTube videos. But within those videos, I do mid-rolls, much like a podcast, and I'm the one doing that. And so I try my best to integrate them into the story while isolating the specific section that's an ad. I have a timer in the corner that says ad, and it ticks down to when the, the ad is over so that it's very clear journalistically what is editorial content, what is sponsored content, what's editorial content again. And before I did that, my first couple of videos for Huge, the episodes didn't have mid-roll ads in them. And I did a test version, like I, a whole fake ad where I was like, this is where an ad would go. Like, this is what this is going to be like. And the two promises that I made to my audience were, number one, you're always going to know when something is an ad. It'll always be marked. Maybe that ad timer is what I use right now, but on short form sponsored, there's a UX and also there are some disclosures. You're always going to know when something's an ad. If it's not obvious, then it's editorial. And the second thing that I felt was important as someone who is doing those like well-integrated personal ads, you should know that when something is an ad, the advertiser has final approval over it. But I write all of the ads and I promise that I'm always going to say things about my preferences that are true. So for example, I don't drink alcohol. I have no problem taking an alcohol sponsor, but I would say something like, I don't drink, but my mom really knows good wine and she only drinks good <laughs> wine. And this wine I got for my mother and she says it is excellent, but I wouldn't say I love this wine. And so I do think there's a, there's a line with integrating advertisements in a way that feels honest and real and totally transparent with your audience. And that is 
very much the business model that I was a part of at Vox and is what I run myself. So it's really interesting. You know, there was this big fragmentation. A lot of these journalists, they left, you know, New York Times or Wall Street Journal or whatever, and they started all these different things. And, and again, some of these people have just fallen off my radar because I'm not going to have, you know, this whole, you know, bundling versus unbundling versus rebundling. I think they're all going to get rebundled because like Matty Iglesias is a great example. There was a guy that I used to read or listen to, I think, on, on a daily basis. I don't know where he is anymore. And, and if you're not on a social media platform, you're not following him. And a lot of them have left Twitter and they've gone to more fragmented spots. So I'm just curious, like, how do you think about this? I, I, I'm kind of like all the optimism a couple of years ago when these platforms like Substack and Patreon and, and a whole host of other ones or, or Web3 enabled sort of models. It feels like a lot of these folks are going to be coming back to some of these big organizations because it's just gotten really confusing where to find them and how to kind of make them part of your daily media diet. Does that make some sense or, or, or am I kind of off base a little bit? It makes some sense. I would say, I mean, like there's the Kevin Kelly thousand true fans. And if you can get some people to pay you more money, like if you're paying $99 a year for the New York Times, you're paying $60 a year for Matty Iglesias or whatever it might be, even at $5 a month. So they're getting a bigger share of your wallet. I think Noah Smith tweeted the other day, the number of paid subscribers he has, and it's above 10,000, I think. So it's like, you know, close to a million dollars a year just from subscriptions alone. I but think he's, he's probably literally in like 2% of, of those who've gone out on their own. You know what I mean? Like I, 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 like I have to assume that based on and if you want to do the thousand true fans and do what the average price point, I met Ben Thompson once at a Recode conference, and I remember walking up to him. I've been reading him for years, paying him ten dollars a month. It's probably the best ten dollars that I spend as it comes to that. So if you're interested in tech and the like, I'm like you charge way too little for your like. That was my one thing that I had to say to him because it, it like he could charge five times that. Totally, he's thought about it a bunch, and I think he's trying to expand it with podcasts and and do a whole bunch of stuff. I think not everybody's going to succeed, but I do think that if you can find your core audience and grow a little bit from there, you can make a pretty good living with not that many people. So yeah. even if you lose the person who kind of casually reads you because you're in the bundle, you still can get a couple thousand people paying $8 a month. And that ends up being probably you know pretty similar to what you might have made in a larger organization. I think some will come back. There are some people rejoining in new organizations, some going back to larger organizations. So I think it's, it's very fluid and dynamic, but I do think there are opportunities, even if you don't have the mass audience, to have those like really committed fans paying you money. Just to speculate a little bit on where this might go, I think folks like Matt Iglesias will remain fully independent because he's been so successful. And to your point, like that audience that he has is so, so valuable. I do think that there's an opportunity here to basically have a bit of convergent evolution and create a kind of media company that is much more owned by the creatives that make the content. I could imagine a future where there are independent creatives that bundle on the back end their own, I don't know, business management or like there, there are lots of middle managers that try and do this for multiple clients, but I'm talking about things that are actually owned by those creatives. So Pac, Semaphore, a couple examples of, of, of those. Or, or like me and four other YouTubers who are similar, all, you know, working from the same, maybe I don't have a physical, but like the same physical office or the same editing team or the same like sponsorship management employed by that mini media company. You're seeing this with uh, my friend Johnny Harris and Is Harris, their business hired another video producer who came out of Vox, Sam Ellis, and he started a YouTube channel with them. And so you're already starting to see folks who are going independent. And that I think is a very interesting business model because it is sort of a rebundling for the consumer, but it offers the creative folks 
a much larger share of the business that they're But isn't it at. just like we could have had this conversation 40 years ago when, you know, like cable TV was becoming a thing and think about, you know, I remember, you know, 15 or 20 years ago when Bruce Springsteen, you know, wrote a song, 57 channels and nothing on. And now there's like literally 2000 channels. And my point is, is like 40 years ago with cable, there was lots of little studios that were created that turned into big things. And now they're just getting blown apart. I, I just think it's like this, you know, resurgence of a model that, you know, media is become really familiar with. That That being said, because you just use yourself as an example, I, I've been saying this, I say this to anybody who will listen. I mean, I think Cleo in 10 years from now is going to be a mashup of like Tom Brokaw, Barbara Walters, and Oprah. <laughs> I think you are going to be the biggest thing and whatever That's emerges nice. from all of this disruption in media. And I mean that really seriously, because every time I watch one of your videos, I'm absolutely captivated. It could be a topic that I've never even thought of before. And you do attack some of those. And the level of optimism is the thing that I think keeps people really engaged. Obviously, the quality of the research you do and the way you deliver it is fine. You don't even have to. You don't even have to respond. I'm just going to put that out there. And I will say this because you know you're here. You know how much I think about like a lot of the work that you do. I learned so much about crypto and and the kind of psychology in around Web three. And, and I got to tell you, you just said something. You know, when we started the pod, you know, you remained optimistic during this bear market. And you know, I've said this routinely. You've forgotten more about that space than I'll ever know. But the smartest people that I know in finance and tech were in and around the crypto space. And it's kind of ironic in a way as we're recording this. I think Bitcoin is like touching forty thousand again, and it feels like in a very constructive manner without all the laser eyes and all the, the all the BS that was going on on the social web. And so to me, like people kept heads down, they kept optimistic and they kept on building. So it'll be really interesting to see what comes from that. So well done on you, not boring <laughs> friend over there. Well, no, I mean, and that, that is, I would say, the topic that most people have gotten the most mad at me for writing about because I'm like, this is not investment advice. I think this is really interesting. Please don't like, if you want to lose your money, go for it. If not, whatever, you know, just over the past two years, like the amount of infrastructure improvements that there have been, the amount of people kind of, like you said, putting their heads down and continuing to build, it just feels like this cycle, there's going to be some better products and it might break through and kind of be the thing that everybody uses and it might not be the cycle. And then it'll keep getting a little better and the next cycle it'll come. I think for me, on kind of all of these topics, like the thing is like in its ideal state, is it a really good, you know, is it really useful? And so for crypto, that could be making capitalism run more efficiently. It could certainly be decentralizing ownership of places like OpenAI or governance of places like OpenAI or making sure that large models aren't controlled by one company. And there's this big kind of like intersection between AI and crypto that's kind of starting at least on a vibes level. Of course it is. Yeah. <laughs> but but I, I do think there are some like, you know, verifying, you know, there's, there's cryptographic proofs in cameras now, not crypto, like not blockchain, but just for verification. I think there's going to be some interesting intersections there. And so if you think the ideal state is good enough, then like for good and bad, the noise on the way there is like kind of meaningless. Yeah. But it's ironic. And again, like as, as we're getting back to 40,000, you know, I'm putting kind of my CNBC fast money hat on a little bit. And I think you probably know this. My, my view is always like it was Bitcoin was a risk asset. All the other stuff was just a lot of noise and all the, you know, in it for the culture and all the, you know, all, all that sort of stuff. Like to me, I thought that was a bit of a sideshow. And, you know, what's emerged is that, you know, right now gold is literally making all time highs. 
And and so when I think about it, you know, it, it's not a currency because people don't buy pizzas with it anymore. You know what I mean? Or anything like that. Like, why would you transact in this finite sort of resource that has a lot of characteristics of the thing that's been around for thousands of years to be an inflation hedge and, and the like here? So to me, you know, censorship resistance, some of the, th- the examples you just gave, fine. Okay. All of the pillars of the bull case have come back to the fact that if gold has, you know, this $15 trillion market cap, this is better gold. And, and if it takes market share from that, it's going to go to these 250000 price target or whatever. And that's all it really needs to do. And the rest of the stuff could just be a lot of, you know, noise. I, I think for Bitcoin, that is, I mean, it's proving itself. I feel like the this is kind of the setup that everybody's been wanting for for better or worse for a decade for something like Bitcoin, and it's it's happening now. It just wouldn't be as exciting. Like you would never do a huge of true episode, I don't think, on just like Bitcoin is a store of value. Yeah. Uh, whereas I think like some of the other stuff, messier, harder, less simple, might be more you know useful at least over time. Although I think Bitcoin will remain the number one asset in the space for for a long time. All right, so let's do this. Let's shift gears before we get out of here. I really, again, I find what you guys do phenomenal, and I'm really glad that our listeners get to hear a little bit about what you guys are both are doing and how you got there. And I hope they follow you, subscribe, do everything it is um, and, and check out their content. I, I want to talk a little bit about this kind of, you know, optimistic bent that you have. And, you know, for me as like a, a public markets, like primarily a stock market guy, I tend to be a little contrarian. I have a sort of cynical view. You know, I came into the markets and working at a hedge fund in, in leafy Greenwich, Connecticut and working for some guys that people think are, you know, like a little shadowy and, and this and that, whatever. And I've seen sovereign debt credit crisis is in long-term capital and the dot-com implosion and then the financial crisis and, you know, all this sort of stuff. And it's hard, you know, if you think back over the last 25 years in the markets and not be a little cynical and not be a little negative about it. And, you know, industries like crypto were born out of like saying, we're not going to do it that way. And so when I think about the stock market right now, okay, we're very near all-time highs. And it's been obviously a really volatile few years. I think about Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Alphabet, Meta, NVIDIA, and Tesla. And they're called the Magnificent Seven. Somebody coined that, okay? So those seven stocks make up 30% of the S&P 500. That is an index, people, of 500 stocks, okay? Seven. All right. They're about $13 trillion in market cap. And they're run by folks like Tim Cook and Sundar Pichai and Satya Nadella and Jensen Wang and Elon Musk and you know Mark Zuckerberg. And when I think about these folks and I think about the hundreds of billions of dollars in wealth that they have, the trillions of dollars in revenue and hundreds of billions of dollars in profits. And, and really, you know, just yesterday, Elon Musk is touring Israel with Benjamin Netanyahu like he's a foreign leader. You know what I mean? And so I'm really hard pressed to be optimistic about those folks, the concentration of wealth that they have, the the, the monopolies that those companies have, the ineptitude in which global governments have been in kind of reigning in their power. Like, do you remain optimistic after everything I just said? Because I don't know how like any upstarts come and challenge any of those companies or any of those leaders, let alone governments. You know what I mean? Because we've been talking about at CNBC, it seems like every day there's a new conversation about regulatory oversight and this and that, whatever, and there is none of it. And so, uh, Cleo, I'll put it to you. When you think of some of those characters, mash up every Bond villain you know, or every villain from one of those dystopian sci-fi movies or books or something like that, that you've read or watched or this and whatever, and they all have characteristics of those folks. And so to me, like they make me very nervous. And I've said this time and again, I think Elon Musk is probably the most dangerous person on this planet or one of 
of the most dangerous people who have ever lived on this planet. And I don't mean genocide or this and that or whatever. I mean what is at his fingertips when you think of SpaceX, if you think about Starlink, if you think about Neuralink, if you think about his access to wealth, if you think about Twitter. I mean, to me, that guy, um, I know this is surprising you, Packy, because I think we've done podcasts. I thought you loved that it. That guy. No, he just makes me very nervous. Does he make you nervous? So many. Lots of threads. Uh, Lots of threads. Levels in here. here. I mean, listen, as a journalist, one of the things that I care a lot about is expertise. And I have to admit that I'm out of my depth here in terms of evaluating. What I do learn to do is, over a short period of time, learn a lot about one particular approach or technology or effort at a company to pursue a technology. So, for example, with AI music, what I was trying to learn about was how do you use machine learning to mimic the human voice and create music in that way? And what are the implications of that? And how does Spotify think about that? And what is, as you know, a creator myself whose voice is readily available on the internet, like what does this mean for ownership? And, all that? and when I'm doing that, I am thinking about the leaders of these companies, the people who are actually working on these technologies. And I think that in order to be optimistic, what I have to do is I have to sort of map out the whole forest and all the paths through the forest and see where the dark ones go so that I can kind of shine a light on the one over here that might lead us through a bunch of, you know, scary turns towards something better. Sometimes that's a very specific technological hurdle. For example, I'm working on a story about supersonic planes right now. The Concorde, we used to have supersonic planes in my parents' lifetime. The reason why the Concorde failed is, you know, multifaceted. But one of the big issues, supersonic planes are super loud. The sonic boom doesn't just happen once, it happens across the whole path of a supersonic plane. Can you overcome that technologically? That's one question that would like take us through the path to a better future of supersonic planes. Another question, yeah, is who are building these tools? Who are the people who are going to control the use of that technology? There's a big difference between using a supersonic plane that is quiet, if we overcome this, to make our military more powerful or to transport you know, people like you and me around the world more quickly. So I do care about who's in charge of these technologies, but the truth is that I'm not an expert on evaluating those things. So most of my show is about the technology itself. But th just as somebody who looks at all those topics, I mean, does it does it make you a little nervous just the, the amount of just control over some of these industries that some of these folks have and, and the like here? And I'm just curious, Packy, like because you, you you know, you think about a lot of these companies, you think about how their products and services interact as being big incumbents, you're investing in companies that are hopefully going to take on a lot of these products and services and gain market share and the like. I'm just curious, like, is it something that as a techno optimist, does it make you a bit nervous? Because it's just interesting to me that, you know, the powers that be come at, at the defense of a lot of these folks when they come under criticism routinely. And, and it's really only the outgunned folks in Congress who have their sights trained on these folks, you know. And they're not doing a very good job of it. And I think like the kind of a thesis that I've developed over the past few weeks, maybe a little bit longer, but is one that these companies are going to get much, 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 much bigger and not smaller, right? Like one of the the things that kind of blew my mind when I thought about it is if you get energy, intelligence, and dexterity, so robots, you essentially turn labor into like, you know, not just the robots take your jobs, but you turn labor into an addressable market by these tech companies, right? So instead of everybody making their own independent decisions on where they work, somebody has access to 50 million robots that are intelligent and they control that and make the money. So th these companies are going to get absolutely massive. I think to your point, Elon has five, six companies. Sam Altman runs one company, but is an investor in Helion is an investor in a longevity company. So it seems to be that there's like a handful of people who are so good connected or something that they're able to 
have their hands in these technologies that are going to be incredibly important and, and valuable over time. I don't know. The, did you read the Elon book? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he keeps coming, Isaacson keeps coming back to this question throughout the book, which is like, if Elon didn't have these demons, like if he didn't have this dark side, would he be Elon Musk? Would he be as a fact? And like the answer is very, very clearly no. Like it seems almost silly to ask the question, like you take the good with the bad. And I think on net, other than dumb tweets and whatever else, there's been nothing that he's done that like really, really makes me think that the world is in danger because Elon exists. I think it's way better that not only do you have SpaceX and have a space economy happening now, maybe the ability to make the humanity multiplanetary, but we've talked to so many fission and fusion founders in particular during the season of Age of Miracles, over half of them probably are building in fission and fusion because they saw that SpaceX was able to do what they did. I think the positive impact on the world, if even a few of those companies kind of make it, it's just like deeply outweighs my concerns about the concentration of power. And if you're really worried about it, we'll, we'll you know, decentralize and, and do crypto on all, all that stuff. But I'm not super concerned. Yeah, it's interesting though. So last week at this APAC CEO summit, Sam Altman, you know, now, I guess, again, the CEO of OpenAI, he had this comment, and I think it was really kind of interesting. He says, push the veil of ignorance back and the frontier of discovery forward. And so I just think that was like a really interesting comment. He's talking about this Q-star development. No one knows what it is. It's something that a lot of folks now think it was one of the things that made the board a little uncomfortable with some sort of, you know, breakthrough that's going to lead quicker to AGI and, and the like here. So I, I just think it's funny when you have folks like him, you know, talking like that in, in, in ways most of us will never understand understand, I think we're going to wake up someday and a lot of this technology is going to be in the hands of very few people. It's going to be something that most governments are not going to be able to rein in and, and the like. And, you know, I go back to, again, turn of the century when the Justice Department was all over Microsoft. They had never seen a company with the sort of monopoly power that they had. And they really kind of set them back a bit. I mean, you know, Microsoft missed the internet. They missed mobile. If you think about the, with their preoccupation with all the regulatory stuff and none of those efforts have, have really slowed down any of these companies and it's just kind of increased it. And I read your post that you had about tech getting much bigger. And I agree with it. I mean, listen, people, you want some, you know, investment advice, just buy the QQQ, which is the NASDAQ 100. My, because, my biggest holding is TQQQ. Yeah, because like, I mean, just all of those companies, they're all going to be, you know, $5 trillion companies. And you know what? Uh, Sam Altman's probably going to be the CEO of, of one of them in the not so distant future. So, all right, well, listen, we ended on that. I, I want to end on like a quote when I was thinking about the two of you guys, one of my favorite movies, I think it was in 2000, was almost famous as the Cameron Crowe movie. And and there's a scene in the beginning of the movie where the music critic, Lester Bangs, is sitting with a kid. Do you guys know the movie? Have you watched the movie? And he's talking to this kid who wants to break into the, the music writing business or whatever. And Lester Bangs, played by Philip Seymour Hoffman, looks at the kid after they were talking. He goes, there's absolutely nothing that's controversial about you. And he's just saying, like, what a good, optimistic young kid. He's like basically saying the rock stars, they're going to ruin you and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, I hope the tech industry and this techno-optimist attitude doesn't ruin you guys because you guys, you know, you are, you, you do pretty Project Array of Hope. So I appreciate you guys coming on OK Computer. So that's Cleo Abram of Huge If True and obviously Packy McCormick of Not Boring and Age of Miracles. Thanks for joining. Thanks for having us. If you like what you heard, make sure to hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. We also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com.